My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Hey, welcome to Aquarium Drunker Transmissions. My guest today on the show is Glenn Jones, who joins me to discuss his new album, Vade Mecum, which is out now on Thrill Jockey Records, as well as touch on and illuminate the complicated legacy of John Fahey. I have spoken with Glenn a number of times for Aquarium Drunkard. Each time is a real treat. Both solo and as a member of Cul-de-Sac, Jones has been a primary force of creative energy in the world of solo acoustic guitar, guitar soleil, or American primitive music, a term that we discuss extensively in this chat. Before we get into the talk, I want to acknowledge a debt of gratitude to Steve Lowenthal for his great book on Fahey, Dance of Death, The Life of John Fahey, American Guitarist. Though this interview is mostly focused on Jones' own work, and his new album is a fantastic example of what makes him such an enduring presence in the avant-garde guitar field, we do at one point shift into some discussion of the complicated relationship that Fahey had with race. Uh, I want to thank Steve for his book, uh, because it was its bracing honesty that uh, first ended up connecting me to, to Glenn Jones, who I spoke with in my review for Aquarium Drunkard many years ago. This talk picks that thread up many years later, and I really want to thank Glenn Jones as well for his candidness and honesty in this conversation. You can find show notes and a link to that review of the Fahey book over at Aquarium Drunkard, where we've got show notes for this episode and all of the episodes of Transmissions, which drops in your podcast feed every Wednesday. Uh, We are part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. With all of that out of the way, how about we get into our conversation with Glenn Jones? Thanks so much for tuning in to Transmissions. I'm Jason Woodbury. So glad to be here with you. Here's my conversation with Glenn Jones. Hi, Jason. Hey, Glenn. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. (laughs) No problem. Thank you. So you describe your albums as musical diaries. Um, What kind of events would you have been uh, putting in your diary while you were making this record? What was the mood? Um, (laughs) I'm not really sure. That's a hard question to answer. They they often reflect either uh, people, places, things, um, things I'm thinking about, um, uh, things in the news, things I'm reading. Um, It's it's not necessarily that I set out to write a specific piece about a specific person or place or whatever, but um, often the piece of music as it develops um, reminds me of something that that is going on at the same time that I'm um, that I'm working on the piece of music and so it becomes kind of associated in my mind that way yeah which for instrumental music is uh, at least for me kind of a way of keeping the music um, alive or I would say relevant as I play it you know um, so I, I sometimes will um, well not sometimes I mean if, if I've written a piece that um, is for a friend or whatever, I'll often be thinking about that friend while I'm playing. And it kind of gives me something to hang the piece on. Yeah. Either it's a, a feeling I have for that person or um, just the maybe the time of year or the um, you know what the weather is like or where I was when I uh, came up with the piece, something like that. Um, my, my pieces are not so much... Um, they don't exist as as examples of virtuosity. In some ways, I'm 
suspicious of virtuosity, in fact, because oftentimes it's um, virtuosity for its own sake rather than as a, um, a way to express something. You know, I went to, I went to uh, college uh, as a painting and printmaking major in the early 70s in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And the first year was kind of a core curriculum where we studied things like, uh, oh, color and painting and drawing and all that stuff and, and learning to do those things. Basically, learning to draw was learning to see. And we acquired the various skills that you need to do those things in that core curriculum. But at the end of that first year, when I started the second year, it was sort of like, okay, now that you've learned all that stuff, let's forget about it and find out what you actually have to say, because it isn't just about the technique that you've learned. It's about something, you know, deeper than that, supposedly. And in that second year, I kind of learned that I really didn't have much to say visually. But what I did learn from my college years is that, um, is to kind of see through the artifice a little bit, or at least to be suspicious of the artifice. And there's plenty of um, guitarists, uh, which I mainly am, uh, who can play circles around me and who are much more accomplished than I am. But oftentimes I kind of feel like there isn't a lot of, um, a lot there, you know, um, that beyond the um, beyond the technique, um, there isn't a lot of uh, soul or depth or reasons to to listen to the music, or at least not for me. Yeah. So the kind of music that I respond to is um, you know where I'm 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 looking for something that's on um, a different level. And you know, as you, as you probably know, uh, you know, I was friends with John Fahey for about 25 years, and I knew probably Basho for the last um, six, eight years or so of his life. And both of those uh, players, as different as they are, viewed music as a way to get to something that was beyond music. And that's kind of been my uh, goal or ambition too, you know? Yeah. You're talking about the ineffable. You're talking about this thing that it's it's really hard to put it in words, I imagine. when you When you accomplish it, when you tap into that thing that you're trying to get to, which I imagine over your long, you know, tenure of playing music, you've you've achieved that feeling that you're after many times, you know. But listening to this record, I absolutely thought a lot about that. I thought about the the soul that you can hear in the playing and the kind of the space. Something that I thought was we talked once before, and I, I feel like you told me that a lot of times mm. you'd record. Uh, with the door open or or uh, a window open or whatever, you're not particularly worried about isolating out other sounds. Uh, was this one similar? Um, not as much. We did record in a uh, we recorded in a friend's house up on Mount Desert Island, Maine, which was a spectacularly beautiful area. As much as I got to see of it, you know. Sure. Um, we did. But did have a bunch of crows squawking outside and thunderstorms and stuff like that that was going on. So we weren't isolated from the environment, but I'm not sure that the environment was as much a part of the music as, as some of my albums have been. Is is that that sense, though, like when when this was rec you recorded this one with um, you recorded this with Matthew uh, Azavado. as as a veto as a veto who isn't your normal engineer you you normally work with Laura Baird what was it that facilitated that particular change in uh in personnel and then you know how did it affect the the outcome covid yeah <laughs> um I was planning i was planning to begin recording in march of uh 2020 with Laura and march was when the lockdowns began so we talked on the phone and i said well, that's okay. We'll just postpone for two weeks and pick it up again. Little did we know, you know. So um, most of 2020 went by. And when I kind of felt like it was time to start talking about recording again, uh, Laura, who's living with her mom, was reluctant to have me down there for for that reason and was also reluctant to leave her mom for any long period of time to come up to Maine. She's in New Jersey. Mm. So... 
um, I wanted to give Laura the right of first refusal because I've worked with her for a long time and she's earned that, you know, but she had to bow out. So Matthew, who I've had uh, a, also a very, very long relationship, I've been working with him since back in cul-de-sac days, you know, so he and I have been working together something like 30 years, maybe something like that. Yeah. So Matthew always does my, um, my mixing and mastering and all that stuff. So um i said do you want to go up to maine to record this record and he couldn't wait to get out of the house because COVID was driving him up the wall too so yeah the two of us got in his van and uh drove up there and spent about a week on the island were these songs that over the long period of gestation were you running through them kind of regularly or uh yeah um yes definitely um most of them were written during uh covid but i don't really think of it so much as a covid album and certainly the album is different the album that we recorded in march of 2021 was different than the album that i would have made with laura in march of 2020. a couple of pieces i think kind of fell by the wayside new ones took their place so it's yeah, it's necessarily a different album than it would have been otherwise. But I would say the bulk of the album, three quarters of it at least, um, consists of songs that were written uh, prior to COVID. Yeah. Um, you know that I'd intended for the the first version of the album. You know, if you will. You write in the notes about how not knowing is what keeps you engaged in music. How and you've alluded to this a little bit in terms of that suspicion of virtuosity or overly flashy mm. playing but when you talk about not knowing you know um i wonder is that like how how does that play into the writing process is that are, are are you somebody who writes kind of via curiosity or through a, a curious like path i mean how, how, how exactly does that interplay work for you um, de definitely, as you're describing it, I'll give you a good ex example. Um, I'm, I'm, whenever I get stuck for a piece of music or I feel like I'm repeating ideas that I've already uh, kind of explored in other pieces, I'll try to invent a new tuning for the guitar or a new placement for partial capos and stuff like that uh -huh. because it basically it trips me up. I can't rely on what I know. I've got to kind of invent a new a way of navigating the fingerboard. So not knowing where the notes are helps me do that. And the, and the pieces of music that I've written are basically um, ways of exploring those um, particular uh, new hurdles in a way. Um, but I, the, the funny story, I was doing a, I was doing a show in uh, Providence, Rhode Island a few years ago. And while I was playing, I was aware that out of my peripheral vision, somebody had left their, uh, seat and had come up close to the stage and was kind of like watching me and kind of scratching his beard. And I'm thinking to myself, that guy's going to come talk to me at the merch table. <laughs> at the end of the show. And he definitely did. And he came up and he said, um, what are you doing? You've got like these partial capos or something on the necks and you're playing in different tunings i see you retuning between songs or using different guitars and i said yeah i i basically explained what i just explained to you i said then the not knowing part of it is what gets me there and he's like but if you do all that how do you know where the notes are and i said rather gleefully i said you don't like like th this was a goal and he just shook his head and it was like you know, I spent my life learning where the notes are. I'm just supposed to throw that out the way. And I was like, well, I, yeah, I guess that approach is not for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what's so interesting, though. I mean, do you find that it, um, on a purely practical level, do you ever find yourself in the position of hearing a composition and not having kept track of the notation or the system and just sort of been like, I'm not 100% sure how I would replicate that. Is that even a concern? Um, not so much. I mean, some things, uh, as with any um, process, there's a um, there's mm, there's things you accept and things you reject. And the process of writing material is different than listening to it. And a lot of times in the making of the albums. I'll discover things that don't work that I've been playing for a year or two years, maybe sure. even Everything worked fine. So I don't know if it's a left brain, right brain thing or whatever it is, but suddenly I'll listen to it and I'll, 
And it's like, why, why is that fourth section even there? It doesn't really have any. So you're constantly, uh, or at least I'm constantly kind of winnowing out things to work and trying to find things that work better or um, complement what I've already written. But I never think in terms of like, uh, okay, I started on the fourth, I should go to a fifth or the bridge should go to that. I, I never think in those terms at all. And even in cul-de-sac, when um, other band members wanted to know what I was doing, I would always say, check with Jonathan, the bass player, because he would say, he's in B flat and he's going to, he would know what I was doing. Whereas to me, it was just an intuitive process. And I wasn't thinking about the notes or the key or anything else in particular, you know. If I if I needed to give somebody that information, I had to check the tuner and see what it said I was doing, you know. So did do you find that was were there um did you have sort of um examples that of musicians who you admired who who played in that cuz you're describing a free almost like a free music, free jazz approach to some to some degree. Although, of course, free jazz people, some knew exactly what they were playing versus others who did. You know, it's it, it's all over the map. But um, did you have sort of like examples of of that? How how did you? Was it intuitive for you as a teenager too? Is that also the way you started engaging with music right um, away, or did people show you that? You know, no, nobody showed me that. There was no real way to learn that stuff when I was starting out. <laughs> There were tutorials. You could get a few um, music books and stuff like that, but I didn't learn my first open tuning until um, I got uh, Elizabeth Cotton's uh, first album on Folkways, which was released in 1958. And you know, in the notes, it explained that one of the songs was in an open tuning. And I later discovered that Liz Elizabeth Cotton also showed John Fahey his first open tuning because he didn't know how that stuff worked either. There was he just knew that there was a piece he was trying to play that didn't sound right. Yeah, and Elizabeth. With cotton said no 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 well you got to do this and she showed him like open sheet tuning or something and john was definitely more um he, i think he was a very intuitive player and he also assimilated influences from all over and they all kind of went into the melting pot that was his mind and came out in music that doesn't sound like any of the things he was listening to but sounds like john fay mm -hmm. and but but he also had a good technically more of a technical understanding of what he was doing than I did. You know, when we worked, then I do. When we worked together on that album, uh, The Epiphany of Glenn Jones, which Fahey titled uh, the collaboration album between uh, Cul-de-Sac and John, um, he would often write write notes about things that he wanted to do. And I realized that he was sometimes thinking in semi-technical terms but there would also be things where he would just um kind of tune the guitar at random and just kind of plunge in and take a much more intuitive approach and and on record his piece called um guitar excursion into the unknown i think that that i'm not positive but i think that was him playing some piece that he had written in one tuning on a in a uh, in when he was tuned in a different way and just decided that he he liked the way it sounded. It's kind of a um, it's a piece that doesn't make a lot of musical sense, but it's engaging and interesting. And you're like, this is where's he going with this? You know? Yeah. So and that was one of his pieces that later on, a lot of his music he rejected, but that was a piece that he said, I wish I could learn to play that song again because that was one that at least was still puzzling to him. And I think if it was still puzzling to him, you know, he was interested in it. Whereas things he knew and had already done, he, he was ready to move on from, you know? Yeah, that that's interesting. And it makes us, it, the, the pursuit of novelty, right? You know, and of, and of like a creative expression that it, it falls directly in line with what you were saying about not knowing, you know, and the, and the space that can open up where, if you don't know how to describe something or how to put your finger on it, it's musically, it at least has a chance of being interesting. Maybe it's terrible, but it could be interesting, you know? And I think that that's an interesting, going back, I think I read that you, you first bought a guitar after listening to Jimi Hendrix's Axes Bold as Love. Is that right? That's correct. Uh -huh. But you bought an acoustic guitar after listening to that record? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, it was, it was what, what I could afford. I went with my dad who uh, paid $45 for a Martin acoustic or for a Harmony acoustic guitar. I mean, a real cheapo guitar. I think it was $3 tax, $48. So that was my first guitar. 
But the um, you were talking about was I doing this when I was a teenager? The first piece I learned to play was the uh, the Animals House of the Rising Sun. Uh, the second song I learned to play was uh, Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice. It's all right. And the third song I learned to play, play was um, a piece where I took my mother's Thanksgiving gravy ladle and wove it between the strings handle first so that the bowl kind of became a perpetual motion thing. <laughs> and, it was, dee -do, dee -do, and I put it the, the mic inside the sound hole and plugged it in my cassette recorder where it was distorting like crazy. So the third piece I played was just me experimenting with stuff. And this was before I knew anything about Keith Rowe or, or Fred Frith or any of those people. Right. So I had an inclination even at a young age of 14 or 15 to um, to experiment, you know, and I'm not, I'm not good at, um, I know my limitations as an improviser. That isn't one of my skills. Uh, in cul-de-sac, we, we, we certainly jammed and improvised a lot and pieces sometimes came out of that. And in touring with, uh, Damo Suzuki, almost everything we played was improvised because that was ja Damo's credo. And so I became more, or I would say less afraid of doing that on stage. Um, my mind, the way that it works, though, is that when I'm improvising or jamming is I'm also finding little um, cells of uh, information that kind of work together and repeating those. And I love repetition. I love bands like Can and all that who, you know, made a, made a, uh, uh, um, made something great out of repetition yeah, hi you know? hypnotic tapestry of repetitions yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and um so um but out of that i would find some little cell or germination of something that would work and then i'd try to develop that and it's just the way that my mind works is that i'm always trying to create uh, material that i can replicate rather than something that is always new and the closest I've come to actually doing a whole album of improvised music is the 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 record that I made with David Greenberger and Chris Corsano. Mm. We did this record of duplex planet stories with David reading um, stories that he had got from his interviews with elderly people. Chris Orsano uh, playing drums and percussion and me playing guitar and banjo. Chris's forte is is improvisation. He's a master and he can just throw himself into any situation and always come out smelling like a rose. I can't do that. But the we over the course of uh, three or four days, we recorded almost 30 pieces of music. Huh. And while none of them were improvised, they were all written really fast. I would basically come up with the tuning, come up with a little part. David would go through dozens of sheets of paper and find a story that seemed to resonate emotionally with, he, with what he was hearing me doing. Chris would hear what we were doing together and come up with a drum part and we would record it. And most of the pieces were written in 8, 10, 12 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we would do maybe two or three takes of a, of a piece, but many of them were first takes. And um, so writing quickly is about as close as I come to improvisation. But yeah, the pieces weren't, I mean, a lot of my, a lot of the pieces on the new album, for instance, uh, the one called For Scythia, that took me almost a year and a half to complete. So writing fast in 10 minutes is a different sort of challenge for me. Yeah. You know, I'm really proud of that record for that reason. It's like, I can sort of do it, you know, <laughs> when I have to, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh Something I wanted to ask about the new album is, like, you, all, all, pretty much all of your solo albums feature an animal playing a musician on the cover. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And have they, is there some overlap between the artists? Uh, but there's, there, there's different artists doing each one, too, yeah, right? Yeah, whatsoever. The first, the first album, I just happened to find an old postcard of this rather depressed-looking chicken playing the guitar, and... I'm, I, like most people, you know, when I look in the mirror, I want to see like a young Montgomery Clift looking back, and I never do, you know. Yeah. So I'm not really keen on putting pictures of myself on my album covers. So um, that seemed to me like a good album cover, and that just became, when it came time to do the second album, I was like, you know, I just want to like find more 
kitschy pictures of animals playing guitar. So basically, I spend a lot of time on eBay uh, looking through uh, postcards. So they're from all over. Most of them are like uh, at least a, a century or so old. Um, they come from Germany, Belgium, uh, Switzerland, the Netherlands, France, um, the UK. They're from all over. And uh, as far as I know, none of them are the are by the same artists. I also try to make it a rule to not use the same animal on any co any one cover. Um, I did repeat a rabbit twice, but that was uh, I had a reason for that. But but generally, my goal is okay. If I've already used a um, a cat, I can't use a cat again. Right. You know. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's a great, it's such a great album cover. He, this is like a little, he's a bear, right? <laughs> is it a dog? That's so funny. It's a monkey. It's a monkey. It's a, it's, it's a monkey. But I've had people say, oh, it's a dog. Oh, it's, you know, but if you look at his, uh, look at his feet and his hands, you can tell that it's a, it's a monkey. And this one I don't think is from a postcard. I think it's from a, from the late, like 1880s to about 1940 in England, they made what they called cigarette cards, which were little, uh, like one inch by three inch cards that came in packets of cigarettes. And initially they were like, you know, wonders of the world. And there would be a thing about the, the Great Pyramid on the back of the card. Then they began doing like, uh, animals, you know, the Arbandillos and native of whatever it was and, um, different countries. And then they did, um, early film stars and there were, literally tens of thousands of these things put together and some of wow. them would be series they'd have like a series of 40 or something like that well i found this one of this monkey playing what looks like an instrument but it's not it's a pot yeah you know, he's, if you're, and um i love the image but uh and it's the same size as cigarette cards but it has no information on the back so i'm not positive it was a cigarette card but if it wasn't i don't know what else it could have been yeah you know so well, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. It's funny that I thought it was. I got. I got my mammals mixed up. They're. Uh... <laughs> well, the thing. The thing. The thing that I like is the records look fantastic on the merch table. You've got just like you know this this cat, this dog, this chicken, this monkey, this whatever it is. All the animals spread out there, and people always comment on it. You know. You got a whole menagerie. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's right. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Well, you've you've talked a little bit about Fahey, and I wonder. So, how do you go from uh, from listening to Hendrix to to finding your way into the sort of American guitar soli, uh, what is known as American primitivism, kind of a kind of a difficult terminology in in our current parlance. I feel like people, you know often attribute maybe some negativity to the term primitivism, even though it wasn't intended as such, you know, and was intended well, as a... There, there, there shouldn't be any, any negativity attached to it. There's a lot of, um, you'll be surprised to learn this, but there's a lot of misinformation on the web, you know. Um, but the term American primitive was used, I mean, I've seen people saying, oh, John Fahey invented the term. The term was in use before John Fahey was born. Um, there were three books about American primitive art uh, painting that were in print when he was still um, an infant, mm -hmm. like a five or six years old. He was born in 30, so 42. He would have been like four or five years old. So, um, and the term, if you look up American primitive, if you just do, do a Google search, you'll find more references uh, to art than you will to, to mute. I, I think you'll find more references to art than you will to music because it's been a term that's been in use for a century. And there's really nothing negative about it. All it means is folk art. Mm -hmm. And if you look at examples of it, it's uh, people like, um, well, I mean, you, there's a whole thing of folk art um, sculpture 
There's books of folk art sculpture. There's books of folk art painting, uh, Grandma Moses, and all that stuff. And all it meant is self-taught. And I've heard people saying, oh, it's a racist term. It's no more racist than Cubism or Dada or um, Depressionism is a racist term. There's nothing racist about it uh, that I can see at all. It just means self-taught. And I've also read where people are saying, yes, Fahey invented the term. Fahey didn't invent the term. It existed before he was born. He also was not the person that applied it to what he was doing. And this is, I mean, it's, it's easy enough to just to, to get your facts straight on this because there's a, there's a video of John on the TV show Guitar Guitar with Laura Reber from, I think, 1969. And it was a summer PBS show. She had different guitarists on every week. Julian Bream was on one week, and I forget some of the others. I think Hot Tuna, before they were Hot Tuna, when it was just Yorma uh, Calconan and Jack Cassidy. Mm -hmm. I think their earliest performance as a duet was on that show as well. But anyway, um, she says at one point, she says, John, you've, you've described your music as American primitive. And he says, no, I didn't say that. Somebody else said that. And the somebody else is Ed Denson, who worked for Tacoma and was their promotions person, PR person, um, and all that. And he was using it in the, in the, in, as a term of folk art, that he was creating something that he wasn't trained in a university, he didn't learn it from music school or whatever. And so he applied it to John's music as a term for what he was, he was doing in music, what self-taught artists had been doing in painting and sculpture for many, many years, for most of the 20th century, or at least and even prior to that, but it had been identified in the 20th century and given a name. Right. Um, so, Faye, you know, Faye, and Fahey said, I didn't come up with the name, but it just means self-taught. You know, I didn't go to music school, et cetera, et cetera. And Laura says, oh, but you're, you, you've kind of adopted that term or you embraced the term or something. And he said, yeah, I guess it's as good a term as any if, if you have to call it anything. You know, he's willing to accept it. But what's funny is that um, my friend Claudio Guerreri, who's written a massive book on John Faye called the John Faye Handbook, which is 600 pages and just an incredible um, study of John's life and, and music. Um, he found a, uh, uh, a thing that John had written when he was applying to music school in UCLA in like 19... 61 or 62, something like that. And besides writing a, the various essays, they had to talk about himself. And John, even then, was trying to describe what he was doing and hated the term folk music. He didn't think what he played was folk music at all. And so even then, he was searching for a name for it. And so he called it something like guitar music for listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, you know? <laughs> so I know that he, I mean, still, if you go into stores, you'll find John Fahey filed under folk music. And he, he hated that. He wanted a different name for it. So he's happy to embrace American Primitive. Later on, when New Age Guitar came along and he started being filed under there, he was livid because he hated those other players, you know. He thought that their music wasn't substantial or wasn't deep and uh, wasn't interesting, you know. I remember seeing John open for one of those, or not John, seeing one of those players open for John in uh, North Northampton in like 74, 75, 76, somewhere in there. And I'd heard John say nothing but disparaging remarks about a lot of the, the guitarists playing that music. And um, at the end of the show, John said, well, I wish I could do what that guy was doing or something. And I was like, are you kidding? I, I say, he said, oh, no, no. I mean, I, I would never play what he was playing. I just wish I had his technique because I could do something interesting. With it. <laughs> you know? But that was... That was, you know, uh, his, his comment on that. And later on, um, he, you know, Byron Coley in writing about and writing about him in Spin magazine, um, when he was doing those interviews, they went around to record stores and Byron introduced John to the whole alternative music category. And John was like, that's what I am. I've been wondering what I was for years. That's what I am. I'm alternative, you know. So he was quick to brace that anything but folk guitar, you know. Well, so. yeah, I mean, and then uh, he's making records with you and cul-de-sac and he's making records with, you know, Thurston Moore. There, there's all this crossover all of a sudden. He's embraced by mm -hmm. a, a whole new a whole new scene. I, I think it's like, the, the Fahey, a, a, a complex and, and, and layered individual you know it's it's on one hand i think 
understandable that people are asking questions right now, just all in all about ideas of authenticity, of appropriation, of, you know, mm-hmm. the complex dynamic between, you know, musicians of different races, how often it was easier for white artists to benefit, you know, from certain traditions than it would be for black artists. Although, when you look at Tacoma, when you look at Fahey's, you know, output, obviously a fierce booster and supporter of of, of black artists whom he admired, Booker White, um, you know, I've got the, uh, what's the J.B. Smith record that uh, was recorded by Ever since a, I've been a man full grown. Ever since I've been a man full grown. Yeah. Uh, which is yeah. one of the most amazing and, and intense and a, a record that I spoke with Nathan Salzberg about for Aquarium Drunkard when Dust the Digital did their great reissue mm-hmm. or, you know, sort of collection of that material. Um, mm-hmm. That obviously, given the, the roots of it, uh, what we're talking about right now is uh, in our culture. This is what I'm trying to. I'm trying to trying to figure out a way to like direct all my brain ideas right now. What we're yeah. talking about as as a culture right now is is really important, and I think that there are a lot of conversations that need to be had, and and a lot of white artists would do well to listen to black creators when they're discussing some of these systemic issues, but. The narrowing of Fahey, it's a thing where it's like he also was very much engaging with the same racist systems and figuring out ways to benefit black artists, you know. So I think it's like a it's a the music industry has always been unbalanced and this dynamic has always been in play. Fahey plays a complicated role in the whole thing, you know. Yeah. And and I think if, if Fahey was alive now. He would want to talk to you more than about that than he would about music, because mm-hmm. the issue of race was absolutely fascinating to John. Um, and when I talk about when I defend American primitive as a term, I'm not necessarily saying that John was out was without uh, racist uh, tendencies. And he played with that. I mean, he was a, a person that um, liked to be provocative and prickly. And I certainly heard him use the N word in a situation one time where um, all of us who heard him use it was uncomfortable with, were uncomfortable with it. I mean, the air kind of went out of the room in this little after backstage uh, conversation. And I wondered, uh, I didn't call him out on it, neither did anybody else, but I wondered about it later on because it was a way that John never talked when he talked to me. And we talked about, black artists all the time. When Tacoma was just starting out, I mean, his third release was Book of White. He had Robert P. Williams, J.B. Smith, Bola Sete. But John also talked about uh, racism himself and racism within himself. And he said that, you know, racism is a very hard thing to get over or to get out of your system, especially when you're raised um, by racists, meaning his his family. And he said, you know, he said, I still struggle with it, you know. So I don't think John himself wanted to sugarcoat that. And the interesting thing about him um, using the term himself was, I think, that, that Peter Lang told me the story later on that I've not really told before because it, it's it's a hard story to tell, but when in the 70s, when he and John were touring, um, they got to a club early in the day. The club was closed. So the two of them, the club was over top of a bar, some city that they were in, and they just went into the bar and ordered drinks. And sometime during the day, one of John's uh, black friends came to see him. And the bartender, as soon as he came in, said, hey, you, out. We don't let any right into the bar. And John said, no, 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 I know this guy. He's a friend. It's okay. And he said, look, it's my bar. It's my policy. We don't let any out. And John said, no, but he's a friend of mine. And the the guy said, John, I'll catch you later at the show. It's okay. And he left. And John then said to the guy, do you know nothing about the civil rights movement? Have you not heard of Martin Luther King? Are you unaware of what's going on? So in the opportunity where somebody else used the word to John, John did call him out on it. And I felt really bad hearing that story. Like, why didn't I say anything to John at the time? Yeah. You know, um, it was, it, it, but it was, I, I think John was, I, not that I think that this is okay. Of course. Like, okay, like, okay to be confrontational and, and, you know, use, use ugly language 
just to see how people react, you know. I don't think that's okay, you know. But I think that that was um, maybe in in liberal Cambridge, maybe John was having his, uh, um, you know, testing people in some way or something. I don't really know. And certainly he never talked that way around Booker White or Bolasete or any of the people that he was um, friends with, that he made records with, that he admired so much. I mean, Bolasete, you know, he was, uh, you know, John never, John put down his own records and had much to say about uh, what the quality of his own work. You know, I heard him like tear apart records that meant the world to me, you know, um, but he never stopped uh, saying that he thought that Bolasete's Ocean was the best solo guitar record ever made. And, you know, he himself learned to play several songs on that record. Um, I met him over one. He played uh, Bolasete's uh, Guitar Lamento at a show. And um, after he played it, he goes, anybody anybody know who wrote that song? Just, just yell it out. And people were yelling, you know, Chet Atkins, Barbecue Bob. And he's like, Barbecue Bob? I love Barbecue Bob. That doesn't sound anything like Barbecue Bob. <laughs> he yelled out Chet Atkins. He was like, hell no, you know. And I said, Bolo said that. And he said, oh, come talk to me after the set. And that was how I met John, was I won a date with my idol from being able to identify the Bolo Sete song that he had just covered, you know. Yeah. So so it's a, it's a very complicated thing. And like I say, I don't think that it behooves us to necessarily excuse John and not ask the kind of questions that you're you're asking. I think that they're important questions to ask. But also, um, there it's it's inescapable that the history of music is I mean, what music isn't influenced by African-American uh, traditions? And it's a, it's, a, it's a tradition that cuts both ways, too, even in the early days. I mean, you have, um, I, I don't know, it, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about, but, you know, our... You know, was John Coltrane exploiting Jewish composers when he did My Favorite Things? Was Miles Davis doing that when he recorded My Funny Valent? I mean, the, the American songbook is largely Jewish-American composers embraced by Black American players, you know? So it definitely cut both ways. And when you talk to, when you listen to people like Louis Armstrong and people like that, I mean, they, they understood the difference between black and white, certainly, but they, they were unapologetic about the traditions that they were drawing from, uh, you know? Yeah. And absolutely. And I think that it's, it's, to me, you know, when people ask me questions like this, I feel like, you know, who does music belong to? Boy, that's a hard question to answer. I, and my answer these days is kind of like, I feel like it belongs to the people that love it most. You know, um, traditions, traditions survive because somebody loves the tradition enough to immerse themselves in it and try to find a place in it. And I'm not sure if that um, should be bound by race or color or class or where you live or anything else, you know. Um, I know there are people that, um, you know, have, have, you know, how do you feel about Winifred Raymond playing, you know, so-called American primitive music when she's from Wales mm -hmm. or this guy mm -hmm. Conrado who's from Spain. And I'm like, you know, that's great. I think it's fantastic that the music is not bound by any particular area or group of people or particular experience, but that it has the, um, it has a universal appeal and speaks to people in all walks of life, you know, and whoever embraces that and dives into that music is going to, um, help perpetuate the music. And it's not that I think that, oh yeah, music is, uh, you know, all, all music is so important that it should survive. If it doesn't survive, it doesn't survive. It doesn't, um, you know, it's because it doesn't have um, validity to people anymore, yeah. you know? And so um, that's what happens. That's the way it goes, you know? But I think that, that, that music that does speak to people will survive on some level. I mean, there's some reason why we're still talking about John Fahey this many years after his death or Robbie Basho or, or whoever. You know? No, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, I mean, that's a fascinating, you know, walk through, you know, what is like very touchy territory. And I believe that it's good that it's touchy territory. And I believe it's good that we're having conversations about, it. you know what I mean? I, I really do think that that's, 
you know, the the history of pop music and and rock and and all music is you know cultural exchange, whether it's um, mm. whether it's explicit, whether it's purely instinctual, whether it's studied, whether it's accidental. You know, it's like you we live in a culture where I hear sounds when I'm walking down the street and a sound that has nothing you know that i had no no say in might enter my head and live there in a strange way this is what we you know we're a social we're a social people you know or at least sort of a social john, people john cage would approve of that you well, know, he yeah. felt like we need to hear the world around us as music and stop discriminating between <laughs> what we say are musical sounds and what are the sounds of our life our existence you know Absolutely. Well, you know, Glenn, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I, what, one, one of the things I, I want to ask you about before we wrap things up is you've got a song on this new record named for uh, John Jackson, who was a player, uh, a blues singer. I was very surprised, although familiar with your work and familiar with Cul-de-Sac, uh, I didn't realize you had produced records quite a bit earlier than than cul-de-sac coming into existence well it's it's interesting because um i'm a, i'm aware of this now because it's me in this situation but for years you kind of associate um you know people with what they do like charlemagne palestine for instance you know it's like he does this kind of minimalist piano thing and blah, blah, blah. But I had a friend that lived in New York in the early 70s that was friends with Charlemagne. And she had this great story about her and him getting high as a kite and driving up to the Apollo in the back of a friend's pickup truck and hopping out and going to see James Brown at the Apollo. And I think that anybody that loves music is not just um, relegated to one particular kind of music. I have, there's a book coming out of, um, uh, of the hand of uh, it's an art book that Fantagraphics is putting out of the um, handmade covers that Sun Ra and the orchestra made in the 70s. And I had a big part in the existence of those records because I worked out a distribution deal with L Saturn in the 70s when I was working for a record distributor in Boston. So the guy that's putting out the book, Erwin Chusid, who is the um, kind of the executive producer of the book, got in touch with me and asked me to write the introduction. So I had um, about a 30-year relationship with Sun Ra, and I was able to tell in the introduction all my Sun Ra stories. But for people that only know me from my, my guitar playing, it's like, what's that guy doing? With, with, what the heck, you know? But it's like, you know, I've, I've played with uh, the legendary Stardust Cowboy. I've, you know, I, I was friends with John, but I have a very wide range and taste in music. And with John, I, I was ta talking about uh, Richmond, Virginia, where I went to college. A couple of friends of mine in the painting department knew John Jackson, who lived in Northern Virginia, um, or of the DC area of Virginia, Fairfax, um, and had visited him at his home. And at the time, I was just starting to get into this music, and I was listening to all those albums of pre-war pre reissues of old-timey and blues, country blues, and stuff like that on Yazoo and Herwin and Origin Jazz Library, and I was obsessed with that stuff. And they said, you, well, you ought to hear this guy, you know, he's still, and in my mind, I mean, that music, a lot of it was recorded in the 20s, 30s or whatever. I was listening to in the 70s. It seemed like it was a million years ago. Now we're much farther from the 70s than I was from the 20s and 30s then when I heard the music. Um, but it still seemed like it was from another planet, another time, another era, very removed from the person that I was. And the idea that there was somebody that was still playing this was almost, um, hard for me to accept or something, you know? So I ended up visiting John at his house uh, several times. And I think it's, it's interesting now that John loved to have young people come and to play music for them all night. His wife, Cora, would bring out food and John would tell stories and play songs. And John was a person whose, whose tastes were very Catholic. He would play Jimmy Rogers and Uncle Dave Macon, and he would play all kinds of white country music. He played early Elvis Presley and Carl Perkins songs, as well as like Blind Boy Fuller and, um, you know, um, Mississippi John Hurt and, and all this other black traditional music, you know. And I made tapes of a lot of those recordings at John's house. And John was my first and really, I guess, uh, my only connection to um, 
someone who lived in that tradition. John didn't record in the 20s or 30s, and those people that did were older than John, but they were his peers. They were the people that he learned from on record and, and um, mainly on record. His father used to buy 78s from a traveling uh, peddler that came around and sold records and pots and pans and had a cart and stuff like that. And John learned this stuff off the, the radio, the Grand Ole Opry, and off these old 78s. And so John was my connection to that tradition that I was becoming so obsessed with at the time. And later on, when I went to work for the same record distributor that that um, carried all those uh, Sun Ra records, um, I got to, I said, you know, John hasn't had a new record out in a while. He's got these three great records on our Huli. You know, maybe we could do an, a, a new record of John. And so me and my girlfriend at the time, Wendy Ritker, who co-produced the record with me, went through those tapes that we'd made at John's house over those years and chose a bunch of tracks that he hadn't recorded uh, for any other label. And that became uh, Step It Up and Go, the album that we produced in, I think it was 1978. Wow. Well, that's so cool. And then it, for you to be able to revisit, you know, that that time on this new record via this beautiful composition, that's such a nice little bit of musical time travel. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about John a lot. Um, um, if, you, if you know um, Daniel Bachman, um, I'm sure you know his records. Um, Daniel has been kind of uh, studying, he lives in Virginia, and he's been studying John Jackson's music, and we've been talking about John Jackson a lot, and he's just been on my mind more. You know, the last time I saw him was he played uh, the Lowell Folk Festival here in Lowell, Massachusetts, mm. and I hadn't seen him in a while. He was doing some song in the middle of the song. He spotted me in the audience, and he was like, is that my old friend Glenn Jones out there? You know, he said it kind of greeted me from the audience right in the middle of the song, you know. But that was the last time I saw John. He died shortly after that. Um, but he had he had a long career. He toured uh, the states and overseas a lot, and made a number of records. Uh, Smithsonian Folkways and Alligator, as well as Arhuli and Rounder and all that. So yeah, well, that's beautiful that you're a part of his story that way, and that he's a part of yours. And Glenn, I, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out. This has been a fascinating chat, giving me so much to think about and consider. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. That was one of the more provocative interviews I've had. So thank you, Jason. <laughs> well, I appreciate you opening up and being and being willing to, to talk about all this stuff. Thanks so much for hanging out, and we'll we'll do it again sometime. Thank you, man. All right, thanks so much, Glenn. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Transmissions. This episode features music from Glenn Jones's new album, Vade Mecum. We know we have a lot of competition for your ears on the internet, so we're honored you've opted to spend time listening to our program today. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce Transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Big thanks to Daryl Norson for his visual design assistance, and the show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. We are part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. If you dig what we do on Transmissions, you can support us by checking out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. You can also leave a rating, uh, a review, be sure to click the subscribe button, and do whatever you can to spread the word of Transmissions if you like the show. Next week, I will be joined by occult scholar and author Mitch Horowitz, who joins me for a paranormal and musical discussion. Thanks so much for listening. This transmission is concluded.